this episode of Out of History is brought to you by 17th century French opera singer and fencing master, Julia Dabini. As a child, she was trained in fencing by her father, who was an instructor at the time to uh, some of the best swordsmiths of the day. Um, However, where she learned to be such a fucking badass, anyone can guess. She really got her start doing sword exhibition shows in Marseille, where she would challenge strangers to a duel. And before the duel, she would sing a humiliating song about them, basically making fun of them right in front of the crowd of people. And then, and then she would embarrass them again by soundly defeating them. One time, a dude that she had just defeated thought that she was a cross-dresser pretending to be a woman, to which she turned and exposed her breasts to the crowd and asked them to judge for themselves whether she was a man or a woman. And not even counting these little fun duels that she had in the public arena, she is known to have killed or injured at least 10 men in regular fighting duels. And somehow, being an amazing swordsmith just wasn't enough for her, so she also took her talents to the Paris Opera when they reached out to her uh, just from hearing the songs that she would sing to people before she embarrassed them in front of a group of people. So once she was in the Paris Opera, it really only took a few months for her to become the star attraction there because she was pretty fucking talented and... However, despite all that, and despite being amazing at singing and amazing at fighting people, possibly the coolest thing that she ever did was the time Dabini took the holy vows just so she could break into a convent. So the story behind that is that she had started romancing a young woman, and when the woman's parents found out, they essentially just kind of sent her to a nunnery, to get her away from Julie. So Dabini took the vows, broke into the nunnery, burned the convent down, and rescued her lover. And they went on to live together for like six or eight months or something like that. And if you're wondering why there hasn't been a proper movie made about her, and there's kind of one TV movie, and it really sucked, and it didn't really do this amazing, wonderful, badass justice, Um, You're not alone. In fact, I really think that there should be a petition to tell Hollywood that we need fewer Spider-Man movies and more movies about badass bisexual French swordsmiths. So if somebody could start that petition, I will gladly sign it. Please don't make me write it myself. Anyways, welcome to Out of History. Thanks for joining me again on Out of History, currently the only podcast run by a huge history nerd who won't shut the fuck up about gay shit. That is me. Anyways, once again, if you're looking for the hot goss, look elsewhere. Like I said last episode, 
I'm not going to be rephrasing the whole huge intro every single episode. So go back and listen to the first one. That theme is going to continue through every single one. This podcast is about reclaiming the narrative of the LGBT plus community. It's trying to show that we've always been here. We've always been here. We've always been present. We haven't been as visible in other eras as others, but we have always existed. Also, I haven't explicitly stated it before, but please, 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 please rate and review on iTunes if you haven't already. If you already have, do it again. And if they won't let you, just make a fake account and do it again. Use one of those like throwaway email addresses, sign up for iTunes, and do it again. Please, 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 please. Anyways, this week we are going to be discussing a classic Hollywood actress so famously bitchy that they actually made a movie about how bitchy she was. And actually, technically, right now, not only did they make a movie about how bitchy she was, but they also just made a TV series about how bitchy she was. So that's two. So bitchy that there's a movie about how big of a bitch she is, and there's also a TV series about how big of a bitch she is. Of course, if you know your campy flicks, and if you know your Ryan Murphy shows, you know I am talking about the one and only Joan Crawford. Also, FYI, in case you think the past few weeks have been sort of a theme, we are totally going to talk about somebody from a different time period next week. We're not going to be staying in the like 1900s, 1960s, 70s, forever. There's honestly just a lot of classic Hollywood gays and like way more than you think. And I really would love to go over all of them. Like my podcast could just be people from classic Hollywood who are gayer than you think. And maybe it's maybe somebody else will start that, but I would like to have a little more variety than that. I know it doesn't seem like it now, but there will be. Anyways, 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 I want to start out by talking a little bit about Joan Crawford because I seriously think that she gets a bad rep. And like, no, really, I do think that. By all accounts, she was a crazy hard worker. And if you watch her iconic roles, some of the ones that she is famous for and some of the ones she is not so famous for, she really encapsulates the idea of a modern woman who works hard to get what she wants and who doesn't take shit from anyone and who has what she has because she worked hard for it. The rags to riches tale that she became so known for. And her work ethic is probably how she got the reputation for being such a bitch. That and the fact that she was also kind of a bitch. And it was really fine for her because in her own words, she enjoyed playing bitchy characters. Um, of course, she often wore a layer of biting wit, which didn't help with her bitchy persona. So here's a couple of her quotes because Joan Crawford is very wonderful and quotable. Recently, I heard a wise guy's story that I had a party at my home for 25 men. It's an interesting story, but I don't know 25 men I'd want to invite to a party. Send me flowers while I'm alive. They won't do me a damn bit of good after I'm dead. Love is a fire, 
But whether it's going to warm your hearth or burn down your house, you can never tell. And I'd like to think every director I've worked with has fallen in love with me. I know Dorothy Asner did. And the last line is particularly interesting, considering Asner was an out lesbian during the time she worked as a director, and she was one of the only women directors at the time. Also, if you haven't already noticed, I'm probably going to be using the word bitch a lot this episode, and specifically referring to Joan herself. But like I said, she openly talked about how much she enjoyed playing bitchy characters. And those are literally her own words. She didn't seem to think being called a bitch was an insult, so I don't think I should treat it as one either. And just know, when I say it, it really is out of love. Because Joan's bitchiness is what makes her appealing, and it's what makes people want to still talk about her and watch her movies and watch Mommy Dearest, you know, even after her death. Anyways, like I said, Dorothy Asner, out lesbian director during this time period, and she's one of the many women that are supposedly linked to Joan during this time in Hollywood. This list also includes women who were also somewhat out at that time, like it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as hush-hush. Uh, women like Tallulah Bankhead and Marlon Dietrich, yes, like I definitely want to cover them too. And there's honestly just like loads and loads of anecdotes about the two of them in particular. Like when you read the biographies of Tallulah and Marlene, like apparently literally everyone knew they were gay and it wasn't a big deal. So that's pretty interesting. So I do want to cover the two of them in depth, just not just not like right now, because we're talking about Joan Crawford, who was a little more subdued in that area, at least. Um, and she was also kind of subdued, like in romance in general, which makes sense considering, like I said before, she was very much known for being solely focused on her own career. And the reason that she often played the working girl role is she was the quintessential working girl. She tended to put her career above literally everything else to the detriment of at least one of her marriages. When she found out her husband was not as ambitious as she was, she literally stuck her neck out for the guy to try and get him roles, and it turns out he wasn't really interested in being an actor. And I honestly believe that their marriage suffered because of it. So speaking of her seemingly single-minded focus, I think we should really discuss the elephant in the room, which is the one iconic role that many younger people know Joan for. And I'm not saying that younger people haven't seen some of her more famous movies. It's just this, I mean, pretty much everyone I know my age has seen this movie multiple times. Um, of course, I mean, the movie and book, Mommy Dearest. Um, like I said, pretty much everyone I know has either seen the movie or is at the very, very, very least aware of it, especially the infamous wire hanger scene 
many friends of Joan have actually spoken out against this book, saying it depicts a side of Joan they never saw, especially around her children. Uh, many of her lifelong friends spoke out and said that she was a loving mother and they're not quite sure who this person is in this book. And even her two younger children dispute the events of the book, saying that the childhood they had was remarkably different from the one depicted in the book by Christina Crawford. And Christina even disputes the movie, saying that it falsifies some of the information and makes it a little more salacious. She even says that the wire hanger scene never actually happened, and she's kind of embarrassed by that sort of presentation of her mother. However, there are two things in the book that no one really seems to go out of their way to correct, and that was something I noticed when I was doing my research. One, Joan Crawford was so focused on her own career, she often neglected her children. Two, she frequently had affairs with women. In the book, Christina talks about some of these affairs more in detail, including an apparent incident between Joan and their housekeeper. Although it is fair to say that one could speculate that Christina put these stories in there as another way to discredit her mother, as sort of a way of spreading some lascivious rumors about her, but given the fact that it's one part of her book her friends don't seem to have a problem with, I feel like it's safe to assume that there is some kernel of truth to it. Um, here's some words about Joan from Christina herself. She said, I understand that, of course, I was very young, but I understand that, yes, in those days, people didn't come out of the closet. Everybody knew it, but it wasn't public information. And then the studios completely controlled all the publicity. So no matter whether people were gay, straight, murderers, child abusers, they kept it all secret. And then slowly, 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 the studios lost their powers over the stars and the truth started to come out. I think she was bisexual. That's what I think. And that's from an interview that Christina did in 2010 with Joe Behar, if you'd like to look it up. And this was, of course, years and years after Mommy Dears came out and sort of when Christina was trying to remedy some of the image of her mother, and I, which is why I trust her words a little bit. As far as the rumor mill churns, especially back then, Joan, even with her seeming aversion to having her personal life in the limelight, managed to still make it pretty frothy. Like I said, she was pretty connected to most successful women at the time. I specifically mentioned Tallulah Bankhead and Marlene Dietrich earlier, but she was also connected to Marilyn Monroe. And yes, even including Betty Davis. There are people who speculate that their lifelong feud was the result of an unrequited crush on one of their parts. And it Kind of like when someone likes you, so they push your buttons because any reaction from you is a good one and any attention is considered a win. And I think that we've all had somebody in our life who did that, for better or worse. And if all of this information wasn't enough, which I understand, 
I still have two additional examples. So you may or may not know, but Joan Crawford started her career as a stage dancer when silent films were still a thing. And she was one of the few people who was able to transition from a dancer to an actress once talkies happened. And when she was younger, she was very stoked to be cast in a film with Greta Garbo. And don't worry, we are going to cover Greta Garbo eventually. So she was super excited to be doing a film with this beautiful, wonderful, iconic actress, even though they didn't have any scenes together. And when they first met on set, uh, Greta Garbo took Joan Crawford's face in her hands and said, what a pity. Our first picture together, and we don't work with each other. I'm sorry, you have a marvelous face. Hi, hi Greta Garbo. So Joan Crawford said of this encounter, if there was ever a time in my life when I might have been a lesbian, that was it. And there's also an incident when she was very young before she was considered a movie star. Joan Crawford was part of a sexually explicit sapphic film, which is code for lesbian film, that American film producer and MGM studio exec Eddie Mannix hid and eventually destroyed because he thought her career would suffer if anyone knew it existed. And in case you don't know who Eddie Mannix is, it was basically his job at MGM to cover up pretty much every fun thing Hollywood stars got into in their free time. And he also covered up some pretty shady shit too. He was kind of a creepy guy. He was majorly a creepy guy. He's, when you read about Eddie Mannix, it makes you really happy that studios don't have the power over actors and actresses like they used to. And the fact that he destroyed this film should be considered a national travesty. And when I have some free time, I will find his grave so that I can spit on it. Because people deserve to see this movie. And by people, I especially mean me. Especially me. But other people as well. And also me. So, moving on. Unlike the last person we covered, which, if you've already forgotten, was Laurence Olivier, Joan Crawford didn't really have any sort of relationship that was heavily in the limelight. Like I said, she did marry a few times, but it was never the sort of tabloid romance that people remember for years and years. Probably the most high-profile one she had was to Alfred Steele, the then chairman of Pepsi, and even that is only really worth talking about because it led her to being on the board of directors at Pepsi and doing some ads for them, which is kind of cool, but it's not the same. In any case, the point is she wasn't really known for any sort of life-altering romance with a dude, or really with anyone for that matter. To both her benefit and one could say detriment, Joan Crawford was a woman so focused on her career and her success that it seems everything and everyone else sort of fell by the wayside. 
So with the type of personality Crawford had, would she have been more open about her personal life if her career hadn't meant so much to her? Unfortunately, we may never know that. Unfortunately, this these sort of relationships were never made public by Joan. And all we have is the stories from other people who were around her and the actors and actresses who worked with her. And of course, her children who give differing accounts to what this wonderful woman was like. However, while we may never know 100% for certain, I do think that it is very safe for us to celebrate a real bye bitch. Thanks once again for listening. Uh, For this episode, I'd mostly like to thank all the people obsessed with old Hollywood and the personal lives of the stars. And as a campy historian, I consider myself one of those people. I think right now we're living in a particularly good time for personal historians. As more and more information is being revealed about classic Hollywood actors, it's nice to find out more about these people who, to someone living now, seem so ethereal and distant. It's nice to know these actors are all still human and that we have more in common with them than we think. Next week, we're going to be moving away from the golden age of cinema, and we're going to go back in time a little bit, a couple centuries or so, to cover one of the most influential artists of all time. So I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks. And until then, remember, you're making your own history every day. So make it a good one. We'll see you next time.